our Christmas shopping. It's all done, and, and I'm thankful for that. But the thing that I'm really thankful for is that uh, at some point during the day, uh, Leah surprised me. She said, hey, would you care if we ran into Hobby Lobby real quick? And I went, oh, no. I don't have a problem with Hobby Lobby. I know it's a Christian-owned business. I really, really appreciate their business practice, but what I don't like is going inside of the store. Uh, especially around Christmas time. We were there a couple of weeks ago, and I needed like a brown paper bag to breathe to, breathe into to just keep me calm. There were so many people. There was so much stuff, and everything on every shelf is breakable, and I have small children, and so every aisle is a dangerous aisle. And so she said, do you want to go into Hobby Lobby? And all these Bible verses popped through my head. Love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I'm thinking, I have to say yes. And she said, it's okay, I'll just run in by myself. And I'm, that I can do for you, baby. I will absolutely wait in the car. So I am so thankful that I didn't have to go into Hobby Lobby yesterday. I didn't really have anything to do with our sermon. I just wanted to share that with you. <laughs> this does have something to do with our sermon. I want to start our time together today uh, by reading some letters that children have written to Santa Claus. So here's the first one. It says, Dear Santa, yeah, thank you. Dear Santa, how are you and the reindeer doing? I'm doing fine. I want a new football game and a football because my little brother always tries to steal mine. He may look sweet, but he is the devil. I also want a remote control truck. Love, Evan. P.S. How do you get into my house on Christmas? I like that one a lot. It's pretty honest. Here's the next one. Dear Santa, Santa, if you're bringing presents with batteries, bring batteries, okay? <laughs> this one, I love this one too. Dear Santa, when it was Saturday, I thought I would try to be good the whole winter vacation, but it seems like I did not succeed. Will you still give me presents anyway? From Sophia L. Merry Christmas. <laughs> hey, these children had expectations when it came to the big guy. They had expectations that Santa Claus was going to bring them presents. Everybody except for Sophia L. She didn't expect a present. She was hoping for a present. I don't know what she did, but she was just hoping for a present. They had expectations that Santa was going to bring them presents on Christmas. And, uh, you know, the people of Israel had expectations too. They had expectations of who they thought Jesus would be and what he would do. They thought he was going to be a mighty king who would restore the nation of Israel to its former status and former glory. But Jesus didn't come to fix a country. He came to rescue sinners. Jesus didn't come to fix a country. He came to rescue sinners. His mission, his ministry was far grander than the people had the ability to wrap their minds around. See, that's why Jesus was born. Last week, we introduced ourselves to His incredible plan to save the world. And He didn't do it like people might have thought. He wasn't a revolutionary who was going to pick up the sword and, and slay His enemies as, as even David had done in the past. Jesus, in fact, had a far different, far stranger way to save the world. His plan was as revolutionary as any that had ever been spoken 
but it was countercultural to the point of absurdity. Jesus' grand plan to save the world is this. He said you have to radically eliminate selfishness. You have to radically eliminate selfishness. It's not about your power. It's not about your status. It's not about the army that you control. It's not about your influence. It's about how you serve people who don't have any of that. It's not about what you get. It's about what you give. Jesus introduces this idea in the section of the Bible that we now call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But Jesus wasn't just preaching a good sermon. He was introducing a new way of life. We know this because when He finished preaching, He started serving. When He finished preaching, He started serving. How do I know? Because Matthew chapter 7 is followed by Matthew chapter 8. I just want you to listen to some of the chapter headings or the subheadings in Matthew chapter 8. It starts this way. Jesus heals a man with leprosy. Jesus heals the servant of a Roman official. Jesus heals many people. Then we learn about the cost of following Jesus. There's no room for selfishness there. Then we see that Jesus calms the storm. Finally, Jesus heals two men who are possessed by demons. Remember how we summarized the Sermon on the Mount? It's not about what you get. It's about what you give. Jesus spends all of chapter 8 living that out. It's not about what you get, it's about what you give. And he was doing that for people who couldn't do anything for him. Think about the subjects in chapter 8. A leper? What can a leper do for you? Then it says that, that he heals somebody from the household of a Roman official, but it's a slave of somebody from the household of a Roman official. What can a slave do? Do for you. Then he heals a crowd full of townspeople and then some men who are possessed by demons. And this is how the Gospel of Matthew goes. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapters 10, 11, 12, all the way through Matthew chapter 26 where we find Jesus praying in a garden shortly before he is arrested, tried, and executed. And this theme of it not being about what you get but about what you give is something that is throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Listen to how Jesus prays in Matthew 26, 39 as he's in this garden. He says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet, not my will be done, but yours. I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus spent his entire life doing exactly what he said he would do. He rejected selfishness for the sake of serving people who didn't deserve it. And it all culminated in the end of Matthew's gospel. Our sermon series this month is called Christmas. And we're just saying something really obvious, something that you've known for years, that Christmas is messy. Right, there's wrapping paper, there's packing peanuts, zip ties, you get tape stuck to the bottom of your socks, there's pine needles. Christmas is messy. Something that we all know is that the giving of the gift is worth the mess that it makes. God feels the same way about us. In spite of the mess, He still offers us His forgiveness. Today I want to do something really simple. I just want to show you how messy it was for God to offer us His forgiveness. I just want to show you what we're talking about when we talk about the mess 
that was made when God offered us forgiveness. So shortly after Jesus prayed that prayer, when he said, not my will be done, he was betrayed by a close friend. He was put on trial before the Jewish religious leaders, then the Roman leadership, and ultimately he was sentenced to death by crucifixion. And Roman procedure was that a person who was condemned to die by execution be flogged. Uh, This is um, described in various different ways in the Bible, flogging 40 lashes, or maybe 40 lashes minus one. Some translations will say 39 lashes. And so Jesus was whipped 39 times by a whip that had nine different strands to it. And attached to each of the strands were pieces of bone and rock, things that were jagged and sharp. And what would happen is, the person would lay it kind of across their back and then rip it away to reveal flesh. This is a beating so severe that the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that 30% of people who were beaten in this way didn't even survive this, let alone go on to be crucified. Well, Jesus survived this flogging. And then they told him to pick up his cross. Kind of reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke 9. Anybody who wishes to come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. People knew what that meant. So they tell Jesus to pick up his cross, the horizontal section, and he was going to take a walk through town on what's now called the Via Della Rosa through Jerusalem to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Here's where we'll pick up. As Jesus has this horizontal section of the cross on his back, probably so heavy he can barely stand. He could probably barely stand even if he didn't have the cross on his back. But here he is. Verse 32, along the way, they came across a man named Simon who was from Cyrene, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. By the way, Scholars say this isn't an act of compassion. They were ordered to make sure that Jesus was crucified, and they didn't want him to die on the way so their orders wouldn't be carried out. So they ordered this man, Simon from Cyrene, to carry Jesus' cross, and they went on to the place called Golgotha. The soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. After they'd nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head announcing the charge against him. It read this. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. He was who he said he was. And two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at him now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you're the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. And then the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed. But he can't even save himself. But he's the King of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now and we'll believe in him then. He trusted God, so let God rescue him if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. Then at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. 
At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled the sponge with sour wine and holding it up to him on a reed stick so that he could drink it. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether or not Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is what our forgiveness cost us. This is what our forgiveness cost us. We are at a time of year where we have manger scenes set out and we are uh, really pleased about the baby Jesus who was born and we sing songs about His birth. But let's, let's get one thing completely straight. We can celebrate the birth of Jesus because there was a death of Jesus. We can celebrate the birth of Jesus because there was a death of Jesus and His death was terribly messy. That's what our forgiveness cost. It is a staggeringly high price. If any of you, I don't know if this, you don't, obviously don't answer this out loud, this is a rhetorical question, but anybody ever had uh, something incredibly generous done for you? Somebody did something incredibly generous for you? That can be kind of awkward, can it? It can be hard to accept something really generous. I started thinking about this, and early in my ministry here, I went to a conference that Phil Lamaster put on, and uh, at the end of the conference, there was a, uh, a wealthy friend of Phil's, and, and the way the conference ended is that uh, this gentleman bought all of us dinner at that restaurant that's in the Rotunda in the West Baden Springs Hotel. And, and then this guy just bought us all dinner. He said, get anything you want. No big deal. Well, I was looking at the menu, and, and I didn't see any prices on the menu. I just saw, like, like uh, order numbers, you know, like this is item number 14, Caesar salad, right? Item 21, pizza. Item 24, cheeseburger. Item 51, ribeye steak, right? And then on and on it goes. I just they didn't have any prices. They just had, like, item numbers. Well, I think I ordered, like, Pasta with asparagus and sausage, and it was delicious. Item number 34, by the way, in case you were wondering. It wasn't until we were leaving that it dawned on me. I ordered a $34 plate of pasta on somebody else's dime, and I was terrified. I was like, oh my gosh, I just bought the most expensive pasta I've ever had in my life. Should I go back and like try to pay for this guy? You know, If I would have known what that was, I would have ordered like, a side of croutons and a diet water, you know? <laughs> Accepting somebody else's generosity can be difficult. It can be awkward. I felt it that day, and that was just money. It wasn't really a sacrifice for that gentleman. He had plenty of money. But, but accepting somebody else's generosity can be a difficult thing to do. When we accept God's generosity... It's even more difficult because it involves accepting the flesh and blood of Jesus. We're not accepting somebody's money. We are accepting the life of Jesus given for us. 
part of what we do here on a weekly basis when we gather, when we lift our voices in praise. We're just saying thank you. Thank you for giving your life for us. Thank you that my forgiveness cost your flesh and blood. And we lift our voices in one accord to say thank you. It's the least we can do. That's what our forgiveness cost. And today, God wants each of us to know that yes, forgiveness came at a high price, but you are worth it. He wants all of us to know that we're worth it to Him. He knows what we've done. He knows who we've hurt. He knows and He still says, you are worth it to me. The giving of the gift is always worth the mess that it makes. That's absolutely how God feels. So there's this man. His name is uh, Rogers Cadenhead. And uh, as Pope Paul was in failing health, Cadenhead, uh, he, he hedged a bet. He suspected that Cardinal Benedict was going to become the next pope. And so he did something really shrewd. He went out uh, prior to the death of Pope Paul, and he registered the web address, benedictthe16th.com. So Benedict XVI. He registered that web address. Well, Pope Paul passes away, and sure enough, Cardinal Benedict is selected to be the next pope, and all of the sudden, Cadenhead finds himself in the position of having a domain name that the Vatican's really interested in. So they contact him, and Caden says, hey guys, I know, I know what you're thinking. I don't want any money, but I do have three demands. I have three demands, and I'll release this domain name to you and you can use it he says first of all i want one of the big tall pope hats second i want a free stay at the vatican hotel and i want complete absolution for the third week of march 1987 no questions asked i don't know what cadenhead did on the third week of march in 1987 hazard a guess maybe he was in college he was on spring break but i know that we all have a time in our life, like the third week of March in 1987. Maybe it was a day, it was a week, or a month, or a year. Maybe your whole life up to this point has been like the third week of March in 1987. You want it gone? You're in a new life that doesn't have that as a part of it. I just want you to think for a second. I just want you to, to daydream a little bit for just a moment. Wouldn't it be amazing if it was just gone, if it really worked like that, if you could really just say, I want this gone, absolution, completely forgiven, erased from memory. Wouldn't it be neat if life just worked like that? It's exactly what Jesus came to do. It's exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to give new life, no fairy tale, no daydream. You don't need to contact the Vatican. You just pray to your Father who's in heaven and listen to what He commands of us for new life. So here's how it works. In a really simple way, we give God our mess and He gives us new life. We give God our mess and He gives us new life. So next week what we're going to do is we're going to be talking about what it looks like to give God our mess. We give God our mess, and He gives us new life. 
I know you have hurt in your past. I know you have pain there. I know you've been beaten down by life and the choices you've made or the choices that have happened around you. I know there's shame. I know there's regret. I know that because I had it too. And I know from personal experience that Jesus can set you free from that. He was condemned so that we don't have to be. He was punished for sin so that we don't have to be. He was perfect because we can't be. And He paid the price because we could not. And that's it. He paid the price because we could not. There's a doctor in Texas, and he told the story of his residency at the University of Memphis. He was doing his residency there, University of Memphis School of Medicine. He was studying under one of the most renowned surgeons in the country at the time. One morning toward the beginning of his residency, he gets a call from his mentor. There's a surgery at 9 a.m., and I want you to scrub in. The student is ecstatic. He is going to get to see the best in the business up close and personal. So he gets to the hospital. He's ready. He's scrubbed in for this surgery. It's an appendectomy. And the surgeon says, you're going to perform the procedure. And the student says, well, wait a minute. Hold on. I can't. I'm just a student. I just... He begins to stammer and stumble to try to find his excuses to articulate that he's not ready for this. And the doctor says, just stop. Son, there's nothing that you can do that I can't fix. And I think some of us need to hear that today. Jesus says, there's nothing that you can do that I can't fix. And all of that, all of that work was accomplished as He hung on a cross. You know, Jesus didn't say much while He hung there. He didn't need to. His actions spoke louder than words ever could. And I think the thing that he said most clearly as he hung on the cross is this. You are worth it to me. You are worth it to me. You're worth it to me. You're worth it to me. That's the Jesus that I follow. That's the Jesus that I love. That's the Jesus that I praise and serve. But I know that's not the way that everybody understands Jesus. A lot of people are going to take their cue from the religious leaders. The religious leaders and the scoffers who said, he saved others. He can't even save himself. This is the king of Israel, is it? Let him come down from the cross. Then we'll believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him. He said, I'm the son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. People say that Jesus claimed to be a king. Why didn't he save himself? He claimed to be God. Why didn't he use his power to come down from the cross? People have claimed that Jesus isn't worthy of following because he died. That is precisely why Jesus is worth following. He had the power to end it with just a word. He had the power to end it with just a thought, without even saying a word. He could have spoken and the cross would have burst into a million pieces. He could have ended it a thousand different ways on His own or being rescued by the heavenly host. But instead, He stayed there. In agonizing pain, despising the shame. Why? Because it's what sinful people needed. He could have ended it at any moment. But in incredible strength, he stayed. 
that's the king that I serve. In my mind, the act of enduring the cross was the greatest display of strength in the history of the world. But he wasn't done yet. See, the truth is, if that's where the story ended, it'd probably be that only historians would know the name of Jesus today. He was born in a tiny suburb into an average family. And he grew up, and sure, he was a gifted speaker, but his message was kind of weird. He talked about being a revolutionary. He talked about changing the world, and he shunned power for the sake of service. He emphasized sacrifice as the way to fulfillment. Craziest thing you could ever say in the first century. There's no reason, I'm just being honest with you, there is no reason that Jesus or his message should make it out of first century Palestine. We should never have heard the name of Jesus except for one little thing. He told everybody that he was going to die and then rise again. And then he did it. All of a sudden, hundreds of people who saw him before and as after his death, they began to give their lives to make sure that the life and teaching of Jesus was known. And to this day, we feel the effects of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, it turns out he was right. It turns out that the best way to find satisfaction and fulfillment in life is to lay aside your expectations and your preferences and your selfish desires and to just serve the people around you. It turns out he was right. And we still see the effects. We still see the joy that forgiveness of sins and new life leads to as people decide to follow Jesus. See, if the story of Jesus began with his birth, told us about his life, and ended with his death, we wouldn't know about Jesus. But that's not where the story ends. That's not where the story ends. I want to I close our time together by just sharing where the story of Jesus ends. This is Matthew chapter 28. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone and sat on, and his face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. And the guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the woman, Don't be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead just as He said it would happen. Come, see where His body was lying. And now go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead and He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see Him there. Remember what I have told you. And then the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to Him and grasped His feet and worshipped Him. And then, they, then Jesus said to him, Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they'll see me there. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priest what had happened. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. And so they took the soldiers. They told the soldiers, you must say that Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you don't get in trouble. 
So the guards accepted the bribe and said, that they were, said what they were told to say, and their story spread widely among the Jews, and they still tell it today. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountainside where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. And Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all of the authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this. Be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. We're at a time of year where we are celebrating the birth of Jesus. Remember, we celebrate the birth of Jesus because of the death of Jesus. And we celebrate the birth of Jesus because of the resurrection of Jesus. We are not here today worshiping a dead man. We are here today worshiping a king who is right now and for all eternity will be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are here to worship a king who has all of the authority in heaven and on earth. And we are here to worship a king who has commissioned us to do his work. And we are worshiping a king who is with us always. We are worshiping the living Christ who came to give life to messy people like you and I. And so today, maybe you need new life. Why don't you get it? You just give God your mess and let him give you new life. Stop being tied to the pain of your past. Don't be defined by the sins that you've tried to hide. God wants to give you new life, and he's gone to extraordinary lengths to give you new life. Why don't you just accept his generous gift today? So if you believe If you believe that he can do that, then you know enough to receive new life. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a song. And if I'm talking to you, why don't we just baptize you today?